Hello, and welcome back to the Clavio Data Science Podcast. If this is your first time joining us, I hope you enjoy your stay. I'm your host, Michael. And I'm your host, Zach. On this podcast, we have talked about a lot of different aspects of data science. We've talked about doing research, running experiments, building customer-facing software, writing good code, learning new methods and skills, giving customer calls, even recruiting people to your team. But there is one aspect of data science we haven't had a good venue to go into depth before, and that's how to create a great data science team. Part of that is that neither Zach nor I are experts on that topic. That's why this month we have brought on two people who are as a result of having done that exact thing at Clavio. Those two people are Eric Silberstein and Ezra Friedman, the founding members of the data science team, who led the team from 2018 all the way to the end of 2022. That is a long tenure. So obviously we have a lot to dig into and learn from today, and that's exactly what we intend to do. Their story is interesting. We're going to take some time to go through it in detail, but as always, we're also here to glean as many lessons as we can from that story. So let's go ahead and start right away with some introductions. Eric and Ezra, could you give a quick introduction of yourself, the role you played on the data science org through those years, and what you currently do at Quivio? Let's start with Eric. Yep. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Zach. By the way, I know we're recording this. I guess that's okay. You do sound exactly like you do on the actual podcast. So (laughs) as you said, from 2018, when Ezra and I joined until the end of last year, Ezra and I were the co-VPs of data science. So the team reported to me and, you know, we started from scratch and we hired everybody who's on the team now, plus or minus maybe a few people who joined this year so far. Very nice. Ezra? Hello, Michael. Hello, Zach. Hello, Eric. Nice to see you all. As Eric said, we joined together actually on the same day. Some people thought that was kind of, you know, different. It's not not every time people join as a pair, but we'll probably cover this later. But we had been working together for a number of years and wanted to continue working together. So from that time till now, or till the end of last year, I've been sort of building the data science team. My focus was on the team overall, but also specifically the technical decision making and technical architecture and helping oversee all the engineering aspects of the team. Very nice. Thank you both for coming on the show today. This is a fairly unique opportunity. So thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Of course. I would like to start with one of the more unique experiences that the two of you have. You have actually founded a new data science team from scratch. I want to start with understanding what the story was. What were you doing before you worked at Clavio, And how did you ultimately decide to get involved with Clavio and start a new data science team there? Want me to start? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, as Ezra just said, we've been working together for a long time. We were two of the three co-founders of a company called Trial Networks that we started in the very beginning of 2008. And that company got acquired. The acquiring company got acquired by IQVIA. Ezra and I left. We're like, oh, it's going to be so easy now. We've been working together for so long. We'll just like go start a new company, which was our plan. And we were exploring different ideas. One of them was based on a pain point we had in our old company. And we wanted to talk to people who did a lot of integrations, like integrations with upstream systems, but outside of the world of clinical trials, which is where our prior company was. And AB, who's the founder and CEO of Clavio, he's somebody who we actually tried to hire as an engineer at our startup. And we were like, you know, just looking at our networks and we're like, 
holy shit, like AB has started this company called Clavio and look how big it already is. And that's, you know, e-commerce, probably a lot of integration going on there. So we like pinged him and then, you know, he ignored that because, you know, he's probably getting a million emails at the same time, but we were persistent. We pinged again. He's like, oh yeah, love to chat with you guys. So we like came in and we were like, we had our like market feedback questions were like, hey, if we built a system that did X, Y, and Z, would a company like Clavio be interested in it? And he gave us some, you know, super helpful feedback, which was basically no. The way we had intended that would have been great for clinical trials, but not useful for e-commerce. But he's like, why don't you guys come and like start a data science team here at Clavio? And, you know, whatever, sometimes life takes random turns. And I think as entrepreneurs ourselves, we were in a position to be like, my God, the, the speed at which this company is growing, the passion that AB had, the passion that the people we met at Clavio had, the sort of passion that customers have. So we're like, okay, it wasn't what we were thinking about doing, but we just basically decided, well, we have freedom, we could do that. And so then that's what took, why we started on the same day, because we sort of came as a package. And actually one funny piece about how we knew AB, and as Eric said, we had interviewed and, and tried to hire him for our company trial networks, which we were running. It's funny. So we say we tried to hire him. He says we didn't give him an offer, but we don't have access to our old email. So I I don't know what the answer is, but the reality is, I think it was good that, you know, he went off and started this company that has become this amazing company that we work for now. I do remember where one of the places we met him was the JP Licks in, what's that? It's Brigham Circle. Is that what it's called? That mm-hmm. T-stop? Because we used to have a lot of meetings in the like Longwood Medical area. And it must have just been like convenient for him and convenient for us. And so we we met him over there. JP Licks does uh, bring people together. It's a yes. <laughs> so you mentioned a few of the things that you were doing before Clavio, And, you know, I might note that none of those are data science. And it kind of seemed almost in some ways that your lack of formal data science experience and background was almost a positive in starting out this team. What were some of the reasons that you were chosen to lead this team? And what was AB looking for in your leadership? Yeah, it's a good point. First of all, I wouldn't say 100% what we were doing before wasn't data science related because clinical trial, I mean, Michael, who I'm sure in prior podcast episodes, you've gotten into your background, right? Like, you know, there's a very strong connection between data science and clinical trials and between A-B testing and clinical trials. However, yeah, you're largely, that's right, Zach. And so one of the interesting things is that we said that to AB too, we're like, right, why would you want us to form a data science team? We're not coming from specifically a data science background. And the thing is that you have to picture Clavio at that time. The core product was just absolutely exploding. Like the number of customers was growing so fast that the relatively small engineering team was struggling just to rewrite all the original systems so it could keep up with the scale. And so AB had already interviewed a bunch of sort of more pure data scientists. And the problem was, at least as he explained it to us, and, and once we joined, we could clearly see this, is they could come up with good ideas, but they'd have no way to actually get them into the product. So he was looking for people who could take some sort of concept of anything, let's say customer lifetime value, which is ultimately the first one we started with, like develop it, figure out how it could work as a product, get the data science part done, but then actually like build it at production quality into the software. And I think what he saw is with us and our backgrounds, we would be able to do a lot of that. Plus we could hire other people. And that was more or less his thinking. Right. And I even think, right, he said something, you know, we brought up this exact, you know, probably not the best move in a job interview to bring this topic up, but you know, he said, you'll hire the right people. And right. And we, you know, he he put a a tremendous amount of trust, I guess, you know, in us. And, you know, he knew if it didn't work out, you know, he didn't have to keep us around, but we took that responsibility seriously and 
I think right. one of the things I think we'll talk about is hiring and finding people like the two of you and right learning how to evaluate someone's skills on the data science side. We did have a lot of experience evaluating skills on the software engineering side. And we were, you know, Clavio is a product company, we're not a consultancy. So we always had a bias towards finding people who had sort of skill set. And we may talk about this later too, but like skills set across those areas and wanted to develop that. So you guys were dropped into this super fast growing startup, leading a data science team for the first time. What were some of your initial goals once you had actually started working at Clavio? Yep. Just to mix it up, should I start with this one? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you start. <laughs> Maybe don't put that part in. You can put that part in too. Okay. So, <laughs> you know, when we joined, we were like very eager to sort of familiarize ourselves with the company and the product and also, you know, the business of e-commerce and, you know, our customers. So there was to try to just drink in a lot from the fire hose, but we also decided right away that we wanted to start up by building something. And that's in part, you know, I think Eric and I probably missed a little bit the early days of our startup when it was the two of us and we built tons of things, right? As he mentioned, you know, at, at this point, trial networks had grown a lot and we were a little bit further away from the code. So we wanted to build something. AB, I remember when we first, or one of our first meetings in the office at 225 Franklin Street, I remember it was like a very snowy day and I wasn't even sure like, are they going to be in the office? Are you sure, Eric? And I think we got on the T or something. And like, there was no one, you know, Boston seemed like it was, no one was around. People were home. And we came into this office and you, you wouldn't know it was a snow day. I mean, it was just bustling. Like everyone was there and there were all sorts of things happening. But no, AB yeah, had- I, I want to say that made a huge impression on me. It was one of the things that, because that meeting was, that was before we agreed to join and before yeah. we were asked to join, I think. So, right, that meeting made a huge impression on me. Like, just the fact that it seemed like everybody else <laughs> was the streets of Boston were empty and you walked into Clavio and it was absolutely a packed house. And it spoke to the spirit of of Clavio. Right. And of Eric Silberstein. Because I remember, you know, at our old company, if it was a snowy day and people didn't come in, Eric would ask that. I don't get it. Like, you know, why aren't they coming in? Like, it's just snow. But I, I believe AB had... Maybe it was just a Google Doc, but I think he actually had a printout of you know a list of things that he really wanted to explore for a data science team to explore. And you know, it's one of the things on there, we sort of looked at this list and we went over. We had to learn a bunch of things, but one of the items on there was sort of a model to predict customer lifetime value, you know, for one of Clavio's customers. So for one of Clavio customers to look at their customer base and look at predicted customer lifetime value. So we sort of picked that as our first project. And we said, we're going to build this. And we set ourselves a goal. And since we started in April, I don't know, it's definitely in like the first quarter that we were there, we wanted to ship something. And it was great. I mean, it really, like looking back, you know, required learning about how the segmentation system works and learning about how we store events and then also required building a lot of new infrastructure and systems to support this calculation. And then it also you know, required like learning about the models that had been developed that were you know available for us to use and 
eventually to, you know, build upon and customize upon. So that was like the first thing we did. And we didn't interview people and we didn't like, you know, we didn't, we wanted to first build something. And we hit the date by, I think, by hours. Like, I think we we launched it at like midnight or something on the day. We had the goal we had set. Actually, I, I looked back because at that time we used to have it like, a featured in count is shipped until like the blog post describing the feature also went out. And I looked back at the Google doc, which, and the revisions on it of that blog post. And I saw that, right. It was like the very end of June that we basically got the feature out and put the blog post out. Wow. I think that like that coming right up to the deadline experience is obviously a highlight of that first feature, but I'm curious, looking back at that experience of joining Clavio, shipping that first feature, what stands out? If you were going to give advice to someone who's in a similar position, they've just joined a new company, they're starting off a new team, they want to start off by building something, what would you tell them based on those very early days that you had at Clavio? Well, first of all, I think giving yourself a specific goal, like get something shipped by a certain date, you know, that's customer facing, it's always a good way to motivate yourself. It also will force you to start to like understand the culture of a place. I mean, everybody's coming from a different perspective. I mean, I think for me and Ezra, one of our you know, concerns is we were coming from a place where we had like the moral authority because we had started the software. We knew it intimately. We knew the customers. We had one of the customers. And here we were like, well, who the hell are these two guys? And, you know, and people like they're going to be messing in the code base, really. Like they're the data science team, but they're going to be touching production. And, you know, it's really hard because if you're too like, what's the word I'm looking for? Like if you're super, super careful not to be at all pushy and not to step on any toes, no way you could get a feature out. But on the other hand, the last thing you want to do is like, you know, completely upset everybody in the very beginning. And we weren't, you know, at least for me personally, this was my first time like joining an existing company, not starting my own. So it was like hard to understand initially how to like earn the respect of the engineers who were here, how to work with the product managers, work with designers. So that, I think that was the thing that we were navigating at the same time as the actual technical details of getting this this feature out. But I, I think overall, like I remember the day we went live, this was again, like right up to the deadline. So the day we went live, you know, like there's a whole deployment process and there's like risk for things to go wrong. And I remember one of the like very, very vocal SREs who, you know, he'd, he'd been helpful all along, but I, you know, he was, he probably had no specific reason to either trust or not trust us. He was like, that was a nice release, guys. And I was like, felt, I don't know, felt very, very good about that. Not sure that really answered your question, though. I think it did. That brings up a lot of kind of what you learned from the experience of choosing to ship a feature first, the idea of, you know, giving yourself that concrete goal and, and it forcing you to learn things along the way, I think is valuable to understand. Any other things that stand out or? I mean, tons of technical things. So for one, we, Clayview, even at that time, had lots of customers and a huge variety in terms of size, right? Customers doing huge business, customers like just entrepreneurs, just starting a new e-commerce business. And as we started to like run the model and like, you know, sanity check, you know, all sorts of weird things came out of the woodwork because, well, maybe the data integrity is not always where you'd want it to be. And, you know, you also start to realize that in any of these situations where you have some customers that are just so large right? Like processing them ends up taking as long as processing like, you know, the 80% of the other customers who are smaller. We hadn't necessarily thought about that clearly when we were first designing our pipelines. So that's stood out. And the other thing is we were really fortunate that we did actually make our first hire in that first quarter, which was Christina Diedrich. And we looked 
hard for somebody who had a very different skill set than me and Ezra. We wanted somebody who was more of a mathematician. And, you know, as soon as she joined, she was able to look at the work we were in the middle of doing and look at it just very differently, you know, understand how the models were working and not working. And she had sort of a different way of doing sanity checks and testing the statistical assumptions of the model. And it would have been nice, I guess, if she had joined one month earlier, but it was good that she joined when she did and jumped right in and helped us see where where maybe we had had some flaws in our understanding. And I think one other thing on the technical side, you know, we had come again from the world of clinical trials and, you know, you'd hear people say things like, you know, big data at the conferences, you know, but the reality is even the largest clinical trial in the world, the amount of data is not that great. And, you know, so for this customer lifetime value project, one thing that we determined early on was that sort of the structure that we knew the data we wanted, the way it was stored in Clavio's systems at that point, it was not feasible for us to query it, to provide sort of real-time up-to-date calculations, which is something we wanted to do. So we made the decision to sort of copy that data to a different data storage in a different shape, and which is a, and it's a totally valid technique. I think it you know, allowed us to do what we wanted to do, but the initial like backfill of that data, you know, you're you're talking about days of calculation, which we weren't totally accustomed to. So right, like planning for a cutover, and you know, you had to time things along those lines, like, oh, we better have this ready by Wednesday because then on Friday, you know, this will be complete. We use different kinds of parallelization techniques. And you also have to be careful not to sort of tip, not to go too fast that you tip over other systems which might be impacted. So there was yeah, a lot of learning around how to do that. And over time, Clavio has grown and our systems have changed. And actually, our newer data store for the underlying data in that case can now sort of answer the questions that we wanted to ask in real time. So the team, I don't know if they've actually completed it, but they're definitely well along the way of you know, moving off of that sort of duplicative data store that we had created and using the sort of the core data store, which is good to see. Right. Doing the exact same project now, even though the amount of data is so much larger, will actually be much, much easier because the primitives are now in place that we would need. Another thing, I don't know, I like the learning or I guess something I'm I'm happy with, I think where our intuition ended up on was like the UI. It's a pretty complicated thing. Like you have you know, predicted customer lifetime value, but you also have predicted probability of churn. And this is somewhat based on like what their pattern of ordering is in the past and, you know, how much time it's been since their last order. These are concepts that a lot of people are very familiar with if they've like done this type of work, but a lot of our customers haven't done this type of work. And so how do we like express that all in a UI versus just like giving a number like, you know, $2 CLV or 20% probability of churn. And so we came up with this UI that I I see a competitors have now copied, which, you know, sort of shows it on the timeline and it shows the past and it shows the future and it plots out past purchases and it uses colors to show, you know, like how the probability declines or increases over time. And yeah, I just think we got, you know, I, th- I think that that UI came out pretty good. I remember it was too color. AB didn't like how colorful it was, but we right, like a year later, <laughs> a designer who was able to dedicate more time improved the color scheme. So it better fit with the rest of Clavio. So obviously, a big part of starting a team is finding the best people to be on that team. And you brought up your first hire, Christina. 
and part of what you were looking for for your first data scientist. How did you approach that first hire and how did you ultimately find Christina? Good question. And I don't fully remember. I mean, like we knew what we were looking for, which is we wanted somebody, as I said before, was, you know, this is now, I think like over the past few years, this like, first of all, this is oversimplistic. And then also the world has changed somewhat, but we used to think of it as like, you know, is your default go to like an algorithm or is your default go to like an equation? Like when you view the world, you tend to think of it as, you know, if then statements, or do you tend to think of it as, you know, some sort of function? And we wanted somebody who, you know, saw the world more as a function, because I think, you know, we come more from the perspective of how do you build software. And so we were looking for that background. But we also wanted somebody who could understand customers, customer context, not afraid to talk to customers, like not coming at things from like some super opinionated point of view, like, you know, the whole thing about like the solution to every problem is a hammer or whatever. Wanted somebody who would start more from first principles, chat with customers, understand their situation and see what type of techniques might be appropriate. And Christina, when we hired her, she had previously been working also like in the hospital world. And she walked us through a situation where they were trying to like, I think it was optimize use of some sort of, I don't know, x-ray, it probably wasn't x-ray, MRI or something like that. Maybe, it was a, maybe operation, like scheduling certain operations, not knowing how long they were going to take and Yes, it was some sort of like optimization problem around like limited resources at a hospital. But the way she described it to us, which is, you know, she went down and she like observed the situation firsthand. And she also like looked at the data that was in the computer systems. And, you know, it was like the exact type of thinking that we were looking for. So that's why she did really well in our interview process. We definitely interviewed many other people, including a whole bunch of people that AB had sort of kept warm before we joined. And she was really the first person we were excited about. But I don't actually remember. I think she might have just applied and sort of, you know, made it through the you know, the set of filters that we had. Well, I mean, the recruiting organization at that point was much, much smaller. Like a lot of candidates came in directly or through outreach from, you know, by the manager. I was one of those. <laughs> I remember extremely clearly our first conversation. And, you know, it's a good example of I probably had like 30 conversations like that. And the prior 29, I was just like absolutely not excited. And then I spoke with you. And like instantly, I'm like, ooh, this person feels like, you know, matches what, what we're looking for. Now, our next time after talking, Christina, just to be clear to Michael, I'm talking to Michael. Yeah. <laughs> like with Zach, I remember that conversation. I'm like, oh, yeah, this person is a horrible fit, but then I got overridden over, <laughs> over by somebody else. No, just we, because I, Zach, I don't think we talked until after you accepted the offer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Too late at that point. Yes. Then <laughs> 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 I learned you grew up like minutes from where I live. But our next hire after Christina was Maritza. And Maritza was somebody that Ezra and I worked with at our prior company. She was awesome. She We weren't poaching because she left and went somewhere else. And she actually went to a company that was a data science company working on NLP models. So it was just like an absolutely perfect fit, except it took us a really long time to persuade her. We met with her so many times, but then she, she agreed to join. And we also, I mean, one of our moves, I don't know, was to invite a candidate that we wanted to join to the weekly by the numbers, which is this weekly meeting that Clavio still does when the company was all in Boston and not remote. It was you know, in the kitchen area on Friday at 4 p.m. And I don't, this was also something I think when you talk about, right, everyone coming in in the snowstorm left a good impression. This meeting also, like you know, attending it before we joined, left a good impression. Certain little things I remember, and I hoped you know candidates we brought would see, but just like the intention, which with people, 
you know, presented. Every meeting was recorded and still is. And I think part of what was happening there is, you know, AB really wants to, you know, build a storied company and wants to be able to like look back at the history. And, you know, some of his presentations you see now, like he does go back to old emails when he first reached out to someone or old logo designs or all these little things. They seem little, or at the time you wouldn't think, oh, I should really record that. But they record the meeting. There was this microphone box that they, you know, you would they would throw around to people who asked questions. So the questions would be, you know, your questions would be loud enough that everyone could hear. And the, you know, it's just really showed, I also think the pace at what things were happening at Clavio, because, you know, they'd say, all right, this week, you know, here's the things we released, or here's the customers we signed. And so, yeah, no, I know we, we had Maritza come, we had her come to that and to the Clavio Boston conference. That might've been maybe what finally got her to join. One nice thing is, yeah, those were both four years ago, more than four years ago, both Maritza and Christina are still at Clavio and much more senior roles. And yeah, that's great to see. Another thing about by the numbers, and now this is really nothing to do with data science, but anyway, you can cut this later if you want, but just something I really appreciated, which it's become harder at our current size, but like you were supposed to rotate who presented for your area, regardless whether that person had any interest in like doing any sort of public speaking, because the whole point was you should be pushed out of your comfort zone. You should learn. And yeah, maybe your goal isn't to be a public speaker, but still you probably get some benefit from a chance to, you know, present in front of a hundred people or 150 people. I think now at our size, like, you know, if you think about every second of a meeting like that, it's so valuable because there's so many people. So we've gotten a little bit more polished, but I thought that was great to really give people a chance to be out of their comfort zone. It's definitely something that you see in other parts of the company. I mean, part of why we try to have on so many people from the team is is to give people those opportunities. And, and we try to have new people on all the time for that reason. And ultimately, I, I think what we're talking about here dovetails pretty neatly with a larger discussion on recruiting. Data science is a large and varied field. I think that's a very uncontroversial statement. Honestly, I would wager that basically no two companies with data science teams do recruiting in the exact same way. The same company even itself probably does recruiting for data science differently at different points in time. So with that in mind, what overall approach to recruiting new people for the team did you take and did that end up evolving over time? Yeah. You want me to start on that one? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So like building off of what Ezra and I were saying before, like initially the mission we were given by AB was add new data science powered features to the software and do so with minimal support from anybody else because of the reasons I mentioned earlier. So naturally we needed people who could contribute to all aspects of that. And if you think about it, you know, we ended up with this mental model, which I know we're not the only people who have this model of like a triangle. So one vertex is math and modeling, sort of the most traditional data science. Another vertex is programming, software engineering, coding, deployment, you know, how do you actually build things at scale and get them into production? And then the third is product management, customer empathy, ability to put yourself in customer shoes. And we also realized very quickly that there are a lot of people who can sort of do a little bit of all of those, but actually aren't really great at any of them. You know, they've like learned a little bit how to use Jupyter Notebook and they've learned a little bit how to code, but for whatever reason, they didn't focus on any of them. And we figured out that that's not that helpful. So we basically said, okay, we want people who are strong in at least one of them. 
two even better, but not necessary, but also like at least interested in all three. We just decided for the nature of our work, we wanted everybody to be invested in like getting a feature into production, which meant that if you just wanted somebody else to hand you a spec or if you like only wanted to do the math, but you weren't interested in how that would actually make it manifest itself in the future, it wouldn't work well for us. So that was like basically our criteria. Very strong at one of those three with an interest in learning more about the other two. And I, don't I think the product, the product vertex, right, is also, are you interested in talking to customers? And, you know, Clavio, one of our core values is, you know, customer first. I hope I got, I don't, it's changed, the wording has changed a little bit over time, but it's, it's absolutely still there. And that was when someone's eyes would light up when you'd say, oh, you know, in this role, you're going to be like talking to customers. If, if their eyes would light up, that was a good thing. And if they, you know, seem put off by that, that would be a negative. So, right. That's sort of how we started. And I think it worked for, for quite a while. And we, you know, hired people who we saw the, you know, based on how they did on our coding exercises, we saw sort of potential to become sort of a stronger professional software engineer. And right, there are a number of cases where, right, I think people really developed, you know, who came in strong on the data science side really were able to develop software skills. Some people have sort of even switch, you know, changed title to a software engineering title. And that allowed us to build features successively. And we sort of, you know, thinking back, I'd have to find that list that AB gave us, but I I think we ticked off a lot of things off of that list. There's some that weren't on that list that we uncovered, you know, through talking to customers and product, you know, CSMs, but that was our model for a while. And in terms of how it changed, you know, I think as the team grew and probably as we became more integrated with some of the other, like the product management organization, the engineering organization, we were able to you know, I think have people who were more specialized and that, you know, allowed us maybe to hire some people who we might not have hired, you know, as our third or fourth hire, but when it's 30th or, or 40th, you know, you, it's just a different scale and you can have someone who really hones in on a specific problem. Yeah, exactly what Ezra said. And, you know, at some point it sort of flipped, we realized we, us, but also, you know, many other people at Clavio, that like the overall like R&D team at Clavio had gotten big enough that there was no need for data science to operate and build features with such independence. And the, you know, the advantages of that were probably outweighed by like the friction it was causing. And so we sort of shifted how we worked to be more like other R&D teams. And once we did that, then right, the profile, we didn't look as much for the product you know, we still want people who want to talk to customers, but that we definitely, that was not as important. And we didn't look for that product management part as much because we were then working with like people whose actual title was, was product manager. The other thing is, you know, almost everything we did in our first, let's say two years was only focused on building features for customer use. But then, you know, we got to a size, not just the data science team, but like the company where it suddenly made sense to do internal projects. You know, that's a lot of times when you think about data science, you, you don't even think about external features. You think about internal projects, like how can we predict our own revenue or our own churn, or how can we detect like bad actors on our platform? And so we formed a team to do internal projects. And that's also a different profile because that's a little bit more like a consulting type of work. You know, your output might be a piece of software, but it's a piece of software that's used internally, maybe feeding its output to like a, a customer 
you know, an internal like customer support system, or in some cases, the output isn't even a piece of software. The output is like a, a report. And one other thing I'll say, you know, I think this is probably in part because you know, we Christina was our first hire, this influenced by her and, you know, her desire to find sort of the simplest solution to a problem. And, you know, she is not a person who is like, whose first thing is going to be to go like, you know, get build a neural net and, you know, try to you get some black box, you know, to give an answer to a problem, she'll start simpler. And I think it's, you know, partially her nature, her training. And I think it's also, it's very practical because when you're building things at the scale that that we are, right? Like if there is a simple solution to a problem, it's just going to be easier to implement, cheaper to implement all these things. So, you know, I think for a while, we didn't really hire people who, you know, maybe were like machine learning engineers that like someone who was a machine learning engineer at Google or something might not it'd just be a good match for the types of things we were doing. You know, I think also as we've scaled, as we've probably worked on a lot of the problems where a simpler model might be the right solution, you know, we have started to hire more people like that. One thing we've brought up a few times this episode, obviously one of the constraints that you faced early on as a data science team was this need to be mostly self-sufficient. And I guess we talked a little bit into how that translated into your recruiting decisions and the types of people you got on the team. But I'm interested in kind of how that translates into decisions you made about system architecture. Did that need to be self-sufficient translate into any specific decisions? And yeah, I guess just generally, how did that need translate into the decisions you made on the technical side? Yeah, it's a good question. When we joined, you know, Clavio, as Eric mentioned, I, you know, it was growing extremely fast. The core code base was running a version of Python, Python 2.7, which at the time was already sort of behind. Actually, that was, you know, occasionally we would face that challenge in recruiting when people, you know, would say, oh, you know, am I going to have to work on Python 2.7 if I come here? But so, you know, the company was making engineering decisions based on supporting our customers, supporting the feature set, supporting the rapid growth, not about, you know, like keeping up with the latest technology. And, you know, I wanted to, again, like when Eric and I were building out the customer lifetime value feature, right, we wanted to be able to do things independently. We wanted to be able to iterate quickly. This was part of AB's, you know, he wanted us to move fast. So what we opted to do was to build a sort of separate service, like an API service that the rest of the Clavio systems could communicate with. And this allowed a few things. One is, right, it allowed us to sort of directly go to using Python 3, which was the current line of Python. It allowed us to use some technologies like Docker, which made a lot of sense. But, you know, again, you know, Clavio had not adopted yet. And so, you know, there were some trade-offs with these decisions. We had to sort of forge our own way in terms of things like how to do continuous deployment, continuous integration, how do you serve these services. But you were able to get it up and running and with some help from SRE for sure, but largely sort of independently. And another nice thing about doing it this way, you know, for deployments, I think, you know, there was a time when 
a clavial production deployment you know was taking 45 minutes or something you know wild and right we were sort of completely set like that's one of the promises of a microservices architecture is you have completely independent deployments so made a whole lot of decisions along those lines and you know i feel like they were it was the right decision at the time you know actually there's some projects going on right now where some of those services are sort of going or shifting from what what we built to the sort of main SRE supported architectures. And, and that's largely because, you know, there was a giant Python 3 upgrade project a couple of years ago that completed. And, you know, Clavio has adopted Docker and Kubernetes and containerization. And so, you know, the exact way that I put things in place is not the exact way that the direction that Clavio went, but it's a relatively small lift to sort of integrate these back into the main systems. I also think like, you know, even with that level of isolation, there's still, and of course, Michael, you know this extraordinarily well because of your work on A-B testing all over the platform, but even things that in theory could be more isolated, there's still, there's just no getting around needing to do work in code that's owned by other teams. And anytime you do that, you know, like you have to do that carefully, both for technical and for sort of human relationship reasons. But like, I think one example, I think it was either the second or third feature that, again, gave ourselves an OKR, like by the end of whatever quarter, this feature is going to ship was sent-time optimization. And sent-time optimization, you know, one of the places that it interacted in the UI had to do with like where you go to actually schedule your campaigns. And we needed to somehow put something in there, but that code hadn't yet been migrated to React yet. And, you know, it's sort of like, well, we don't want to add anything new until that's done. Well, when was that going to happen? You know, who knows? So then it's like, okay, well, then Ezra personally like literally went upstairs one floor because that's where that team sat and sat with them for I was like a month or two and first converted their entire UI into React, even though right, most had nothing to do with the feature so that we could then add into it the send time optimization feature. And so it's not like we were, were often like some completely isolated place just like doing experiments. Like that was just one piece of it. But we also had, you know, we to get any of these things out the door required working in in the main code base as well. Right. And I think one piece of advice there is the, you know, same advice I, you know, give engineers on my team, but just like be very careful, you know, review PRs extremely carefully, be paranoid. You know, right. We had there's a lot of times we could have screwed up a lot of things. And I think, you know, overall, like we never screwed up anything in a huge, huge way. Other people may beg to differ. No. But Right. I think we we're probably extra cautious knowing that, you know, again, there was that perception of, oh, this is a different team. Do they follow the same practices as us? Do they have the same interview process? You know, like there was just this little bit of AB would say it was healthy sort of suspicion, but there's a little bit of us in them. And we made an effort to, yeah, try to just always do things well you know, bring code to the other team for feedback, take their feedback seriously. Rotate Try rotate people. Out. Over the years, some of the best moves, I think, were just when people rotate from one team to another, because then, you know, whatever, it it's changes perceptions and builds good experience. Yeah, and I do distinctly remember with that send time page that you were talking about, Ezra, when that release went out, I remember it was kind of, it was the big slide by the numbers that week. And I think potentially the same SRE member you were talking about earlier kind of stood up and kind of said in front of everyone, this was a really good release. Like this was extremely good work, kind of just like 
putting in front of like the whole engineering team, the whole company kind of saying like, this is quality work, like everyone needs to respect it. <laughs> so it, that was one of like the early weeks that I was here. So it was I remember seeing that and thinking like, oh, that's cool, like getting that sort of support from the rest of engineering. Are you talking about Zach? Yes. <laughs> okay, because I was earlier, I was talking about Subak. Oh, okay. Yeah. So different people. But actually, I, I don't think we ever had Dan on the podcast. But Zach is a friend of the podcast has been on a few times. Thanks for reminding me of that I didn't, you know, I, of course, don't have like rose colored, but like I blocked that out of my memory. But now I'm remembering it. <laughs> and I remember it being no, it meant, yeah, it did mean a lot. There was a lot of pressure on that specific <laughs> release. I remember some emo- high emotions in the days and hours leading up to it. Right. I mean, it was changing the technology, but it also changed, again, forgetting about even center optimization, it changed the UI. So the customer for every customer, for a path right. that basically every customer is going through, you know, once a week, at least. Yeah. So I guess in kind of a different direction here, something that can really easily be overlooked when just starting out, but that's potentially catastrophic to do so is team culture. What sort of culture did you aim to have on the data science team? Well, I think some of the stuff Ezra mentioned before, when he was talking about Christina, it gets at it a little bit. But well, one is we wanted a culture of shipping stuff. Like pretty simple, like give yourself a goal, like three months from now, we're going to ship X and work backwards from that and then actually do it. Another was a culture of interacting with customers. We're fortunate at Clavio that we have a lot of customers and we actually can easily use our own technology to contact customers to like line up interviews and discussions or even just like send out, you know, survey type questions. It's not like there's like two sales guys who you know, protect the three enterprise customers or anything like that. So it's, it's, you could talk to customers all day if you want to. And so we really wanted, you know, like Ezra and I both strong believers that, you know, even if somebody writes like a perfect spec, information gets lost in translation. You can do better work if you can build your own like mental model of the customer. So that was another part of our culture. Another part of our culture was, again, not starting with, as Ezra said before, you know, don't necessarily have a particular technology in mind start with whatever you're trying to do and then work backwards to what type of technology might work. In other words, the solution to everything is in a neural network or a hammer. Another part was, you know, not taking ourselves too seriously. Like hopefully, you know, this could just be like my perspective, but hopefully this was achieved is like your goal is to get stuff out the door or try to get stuff out the door. Your goal isn't to like play internal games. I don't know. What am I missing? Well, one thing on the customer communication piece you know, we, at the time that Eric and I joined, there was a tradition, I don't know if it was a policy, but like engineers would spend some time doing a support rotation, like getting on the actual, you know, onto chat support with directly with our customers. And I think Eric and I both thought that was like super cool. And it was scary, but you learn so much like about, you know, how the UI works and how a customer thinks. We just gained this empathy. So we were like big fans of that policy and we had all of our people do it sort of until, you know, at some point, one of the trade-offs there is the person who's getting the support help isn't necessarily getting the best, you know, they're probably getting a genuine person who's trying to help, but they might not be getting like the best advice and the most efficient advice. And so at some point that it just, we had a strong enough support organization and systems to support our customers. That didn't make sense. But we tried to have that be sort of part of the culture that you would jump at an opportunity to do that. And actually, I remember someone who's no longer at Clavio, maybe, I don't know if this is 
this isn't the only reason why, but I remember someone saying like, oh, I can't believe it. I, you know, this is an engineer. I can't believe I joined and they're asking me to, you know, be on chat. Like, that's not what I joined for or something. And I cringed, you know, we definitely, that would not be a culture that we were going for. And I think there's also, you know, Eric says not take ourselves too seriously. Like there, you know, our team would dress up for Halloween and like, I don't know, we, I think we tried to support a culture where people felt like they could be themselves and have fun. And, you know, I think that's still the case. I think one thing I think that a failure in terms of our culture coming like from where we came from before, like we came from doing our own company. It wasn't specifically, you know, it wasn't like a research company. We were creating software for customers and like failure sort of wasn't, an option or we anyway we didn't aim to do lots of things most of which failed and one or two of which succeeded big time we basically aimed to have success and i think what we failed to understand both because of our size at clavio and because of just the nature of data science and ai we probably should have set a culture and hopefully now that some of this has been achieved of we should always have a few projects that are like high risk high reward type things like probably going to fail might have tons and tons of twists and turns and require lots of research. But if one out of every so many of those succeeds or at least points in a promising direction, it'll pay off. Like that wasn't natural for us, just given our backgrounds. And I think that that's something that a data science team should do, very different from a core engineering team and also very different from when you're just starting a brand new company. And you know, you, if you fail, you're out of business. I agree. So it's one thing to kind of curate this culture when the team is small and you work with everyone individually. You know, obviously that's different as the team grows to be dozens and dozens of people and, you know, through a pandemic that changed the way that we all work. So what were some of the ways that you were able to maintain and grow that culture throughout your years here? Also, one other thing to add to your question, Zach, before we try to answer it, it's also, it's not like, not like we were some group out on an island, right? Like also whatever culture we're going to have in our group is going to in a large part be like whatever the culture of of Clavio is. And that was also very true, to, like as we as a company started doing things during the pandemic to preserve culture. Right. I mean, I think, you know, one event I remember that we did, I think pretty early on in the pandemic, it's so hard to remember, but was Maritza's knitting event, which I thought was pretty fun and sort of indicative of our culture. So Maritza's a knitter. We have some funny stories about her, which I were on getting what pulled over or getting a police. I remember like some something with a policeman and she had knitting and she was in her car and I think she was in the driver's seat. I'll let her answer to that. But no, during meetings at one point, I think she asked, she's like, you know, I think I can, I sort of think better when I'm knitting. Do you think it's okay if I like knit during Zoom meetings? Things that I think she talked to her team and yeah, like, yeah, like what you know. So it was not uncommon that you'd see her knitting like during a Zoom call. And we were thinking of events to do remotely, and she and I were brainstorming and said, like, you know, it'd be cool if someone in the, could teach the rest of the team about something. And I don't know whose idea it was, but we came to the idea that she would teach everyone knitting, and we would buy sort of knitting starter kits from a Clavio customer, and that's a Clavio-wide sort of culture tradition is that, you know, we try to support our customers. It's gotten a lot easier because we have so many of them, but so we got this, you know, kit with yarn and needles and you could, you know, for a kit to build a scarf. And 
I don't know. I thought it was a great event. You know, we all were sort of a lot of begin first timers and beginners learning a new skill from their colleague that's not directly work related. So, right, that's the type of thing we try to do. I also think, you know, I don't know if it's partially like the times or also our team, but like there were also maybe some bad experiences I had seen, you know, earlier in my career, but like did not want to, you know, focus just on drinking for company events. So, you know, we would do things like, or, and I think, well, also the team is like, you know, probably proudly, myself included, a little bit nerdy, but like do escape rooms or puzzle events that, right, Christina led a great puzzle event. So I think in our team events, we tried to make them sort of unique to our people and our interests. I think another really good ritual that, you know, evolved a little bit, but was maintained over COVID was the weekly meeting, which, you know, a good portion of which was show and tell. And like, you know, it's like, we just encourage people like, you don't have to have this be super polished, just show what you're working on. And Ezra and I tried to set an example of asking like questions, you know, shouldn't just be like show and in silence. It's like, it's supposed to be show and discussion. And we, you know, Michael, with your help, right, we tweaked the format a bunch of times as we got larger, we started using breakout rooms more so people could have discussions in small groups, just trying to celebrate the things that like were accomplished or were learned, or, you know, we have this whole technique, which again, Michael, you played a huge role in as we got bigger and formalized of, you know, thanking other teams and then, you know, hopefully being thanked by other teams as well for the work that we were doing, but just constantly trying to set a, you know, like do good work for your customer, even if the customer is an internal customer. Performance reviews, we like, look, I'm sure it's easy from our perspective to think we did a good job and nobody really loves doing performance reviews, but we really try hard to keep track of like, what did you say you were going to do on a team level and on an individual level and try to like figure out who really contributed what to that and, you know, apply human judgment so that we could provide, you know, fair feedback and then the adjustments in like compensation and promotions that go along with that during each cycle. What are you most proud of or happy with from your tenure leading the data science team? Well, actually, this goes back to this just today, but this morning I was watching a presentation from our product marketing team that was given yesterday. I'm in based in the UK now, so a lot of these like company-wide things that I'll watch the next day at like one and a half times speed, which is also nice. But you know, there was a slide sort of talking about like our value proposition and why people choose Clavio and what makes us unique. And I don't know, one of the three columns was sort of labeled data science. And know, it referenced a lot of the projects that, you know, I was a part of and we as a team built. And, you know, it just it made me very that I felt proud that, you know, our customers and our, you know, in this case, it was, you know, it's coming from our marketing organization, but they, it's someone who I don't have any connection to. I don't, you know, has no reason to sugarcoat things, but sort of, you know, feels like a lot, you know, validated a lot of the things that we decided to build, like benchmarks, like customer lifetime value and, and the sort of focus of, you know, it also validated, I think, AB's idea of having a focused data science team as part of Clavio, because that was one of the differentiators. Yeah, I feel similar. Like I'm proud of just the n- number of different features that we added to the software. As we just mentioned, benchmarks, there's also anomaly detection, there's copy generation, there's there's a variety of things that go across like 
the whole surface area of the product. The work that we did in A-B testing, which Michael, super familiar with, we basically repainted the whole product with like a rigorous A-B testing framework, allowing our customers to conduct those types of tests. So like, so I guess, right, I'm just, I'm proud of the stuff that we delivered, but I probably, you know, equally proud of the team, you know, and that really like the people that we hired, the vast majority of them are still here, like one or two went back and like they want to get a PhD or do something like that. One or two joined other companies, but most people are still here. and some of the people have, you know, they've gone from being individual contributors to managing large teams, from working at work at a certain scale to working at work at a whole whole different scale. That's always exciting to see. Yeah, and we, we've gotten to feature quite a few of them on the podcast, which I'm proud of and, and happy with myself. So let's pretend that you could go back in time and give advice to yourself at the start of this whole process. What do you wish you could have known before you started building and scaling this data science team? I mean, you know, it's easy. <laughs> once you know the future, I mean, I guess I would have said, hey, guess what? In a few years, it's going to turn out that, you know, insane AI technology is going to come out that's going to be able to do creative work and interact, you know, large language models and image generation stuff. And, you know, I don't want to get into the connection between that and Clavio in like such a brief period of time. But briefly, I think we could have, <laughs> who knows, maybe we could have created that technology. Another like much more maybe practical one is, again, you know, you, you have the experience that you have. And one experience that I neither I don't think Ezra or I had from a prior company was the need to measure certain things extraordinarily carefully and understand just how hard that instrumentation is to do when you're in such a chaotic, messy environment as, as we are, just given all the integrations and the different ways that our customers use our software. And it would have been like very comfortable in retrospect, we should have set in certain cases, I think we probably all know what we're talking about, but maybe I won't say it here, but for one or two projects, instead of like setting such an aggressive goal, like we're going to ship the new system by X date, we should have said, we are going to prove to ourselves that we have proper instrumentation of it by X date and not be ashamed that that was like the quote unquote only thing we were achieving because it's actually super hard to achieve. And we would have saved ourselves a lot of time and headache if we had focused on that. I also think for maybe the project that won't be named, but we identified shortcomings sort of early on that would make that instrumentation difficult. And I think looking back, if we had sort of opted to sort of pivot and, you know, sort of rebuild that system, you know, that particular system, you know, almost from scratch, I think it could have made a lot of things, you know, down the road easier. And I think we were reluctant to do that because of, the scale of the system. I think we were reluctant to do that because we didn't yet know sort of all the details of how it worked. And we're probably like, and you know, afraid to to break things. And we were probably also afraid to sort of, you know, maybe push our feature roadmap forward. And I think right, there are a lot of times where teams sort of prematurely rebuild things and prematurely optimize things, but this may have been a case where we sort of did the opposite. And, you know, you right. Sometimes the right answer is to rebuild. Yep, I agree with that. I want to give one more thank you for both of you for being on and having this conversation with us about founding a data science team and sharing your, your unique perspective. Thank you for doing it. And thank you, Michael, for leading this podcast. I remember, it doesn't seem like that long ago, I think we were talking on a call and, you know, yeah. I think you were like, what do you think about a podcast? It came directly out of a conversation between the two of us. I think that's a new podcast lore we haven't shared before. <laughs>
And then you're like, can I expense a nice microphone? (laughs) Yeah, Uh, here we are. And also, I think major props for consistency, right? Like it's been, this is, what episode will this be? This will be episode 33. Yes. And Larry Bird, have you ever missed a month? We've missed one or two, but none since Zach started. Zach's helped out quite a bit on that front. Yeah. So, you know, obviously lots of times people start things and then they like fizzle out. So it's, it's awesome that you've, both of you now and keeping it going. Well, thank you very much for that. And thanks once again for being on. Thank you. And that is all the time we have for this month. Thank you for joining us on the Quavio Data Science Podcast. If you are interested in learning more about Quavio, which sponsored this episode of the Quavio Data Science Podcast, as Quavio does all episodes of the Quavio Data Science Podcast, Quavio is a unified customer platform for email, SMS, and more, and empowers online brands to own their data and grow on their own terms. You can learn more at Clavio.com. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O.com. If you liked what you heard today, please consider subscribing to the Clavio Data Science Podcast. You should be able to do that through just about any online podcast distribution network. Wherever you're listening to this right now, you should be able to subscribe. Also consider leaving us a rating, rate us five stars, leave us a thumbs up on Spotify. Consider leaving us a review. All of those help boost us in the algorithm, which helps us show up to more people with content like this in the future. In addition, as always, if you found this episode interesting and you know someone who you think will find this content interesting, consider sharing it directly with them so that they can listen to it. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns about anything that you heard on this episode or any other episodes, the best person to contact is me. The best place to reach me is my Twitter account. That's Lawson underscore M underscore T. That's L-A-W-S-O-N underscore M underscore T. Thank you for listening. Have a great month.